what would you think if I said that I was about to tell you the story of a subterranean nuclear-powered base run by the U.S. Army and two Boy Scouts? Does that seem reasonable in the context of the Cold War? In those crazy decades when humans vaporized whole islands in thermonuclear fire and walked on the moon for the good of all mankind, and also to spite the Soviets? Does anything ever seem particularly unreasonable when it comes to the Cold War years? Well, I'm going to tell you that story, reasonable or otherwise. Many know the story, at least on a basic level. It was made very public at the time. Some think they know the story and have become attached to some less-than-true conspiracy theories, as I discovered on a recent trip to some related Wikipedia articles. I've found that a trip to a presidential archive is much more useful and truthful. Who would have guessed? So what I want to do is to dive a little deeper into the reasons for the project, into the history and the drama, the pageantry and eventual failure of a place called Camp Century. So, under the ice we go. Cold War on Ice, Part 2. Iceworm and Camp Century. This time on the Cold War Vault. In 1959, the Army Corps of Engineers had a bright idea. It asked the Boy Scouts of America to sponsor a contest to pick one scout to become what the Army called a junior scientific aide. This lucky fellow would join the soldiers and scientists on the Greenland ice cap during the winter of 1960 to 1961 and help out with the Arctic science being done there. Sounds like an interesting way to spend a winter, if nothing else. But I suppose I shouldn't say on the Greenland ice cap, as it was really in the ice, in the newly commissioned U.S. Army outpost named Camp Century. The competition was announced on June 25, 1960, Minimum requirements for the candidates included that they must be between 17 and 19 and a half years old, physically qualified to live in Arctic conditions, and be a high school graduate. The applicants, or contestants, I guess, needed to provide extensive documentation on physical health, several letters of reference, and a 4x5 photograph head and shoulders of the candidate in his scout uniform. He would, after all, need to look the part of an all-American Arctic explorer. Each of the 12 Boy Scout regions in the United States picked 10 finalists. These 120 soon became seven, who were flown with fanfare and significant publicity to New York to be vetted by a committee. Sitting on that committee was Dr. Paul Seipel, the head of the Army's Office of Polar Affairs. 
He had also been the recipient of a similar honor in 1928 at the age of 19 when he sailed with Admiral Richard Byrd on his first expedition to Antarctica. Seipel ended up making cold places his life. Next time you're bundled up shoveling snow with a numb nose, you can grumble at Dr. Seipel, who developed the first formulas for wind chill. Of these seven Boy Scouts vetted by the committee, Kent Gehring of Kansas was chosen to ship out with the Army Corps of Engineers on the 15th of October. Always conscious of international relations with the Danish hosts, Greenland being a part of Denmark at the time, the Army also invited a Danish Boy Scout named Soren Gregersen to take part in the research season. The scouts worked with the 40 resident civilian scientists at Camp Century for five months, taking weather station readings, helping with research projects, and occasionally, particularly for the cameras, operating the nuclear reactor. I spoke to Soren Gregerson a couple of years ago, and he confided that his American counterpart also spent quite a bit of time in the camp's movie theater. Make of that what you will. When the two scouts returned, both to the U.S. for a round of publicity, the Associated Press reported that the boys' only real complaint was that there were no girls for 110 miles, and those women, being army nurses, were, quote, inaccessible. In recent years, on YouTube and all over the sensational internet, Camp Century has been resurrected as a shadowy base, its purpose stated as anything from concealing nuclear weapons to housing captured UFOs. If you do your own poking around, you'll very quickly see it conflated with something called Project Iceworm. Iceworm was a real scheme and even more audacious than Camp Century, though it was never built, and it's been public knowledge for more than 20 years. Before that, it was hidden in plain sight, outlined in great detail in the 1960 Army report titled Strategic Value of the Greenland Ice Cap. I want to talk about Iceworm and how it related to the inter-service rivalry that drove the army to Greenland in the first place. In the next part of this series, that will become even more important as a theme. I'd also like to discuss Camp Century in terms of reality as opposed to sensationalism and debunk some of the most egregious mischaracterizations. Perhaps none more frustrating to me than a History Channel article published on History.com a couple of months ago titled, When the Pentagon Dug Secret Cold War Ice Tunnels to Hide Nukes by one Eric Niller. My response being that the Pentagon didn't dig the tunnels, the Army Corps of Engineers did. The tunnels weren't secret either, and they weren't to hide nukes leaving the ice tunnels component the only true part of the article, and that only partially so. Finally, I want to touch on the legacies, both positive and negative, of Camp Century. What was learned, what was left behind, and what was lost. 
As I said, Camp Century was not a secret. Its scientific and military significance was described at the time in Reader's Digest, the Saturday Evening Post, Popular Mechanics, and every national newspaper. It was the subject of the 1962 book Camp Century, City Under the Ice, by the best-selling author and journalist Walter Wager, who was given extensive access to the installation by the Army, and, of course, there were the two Boy Scouts who had free reign of the facility and sent home letters about daily life under the ice. That isn't to say that Camp Century didn't have a military purpose. It absolutely did. It was a proof of concept in inexpensive Arctic base construction, as close to the northern Soviet frontier as the army had ever been. Bases like it seemed increasingly necessary to act as a shield against the Soviet threat. There remained a significant contingent of military planners who did not see nuclear bombers and intercontinental missiles as being decisive in a war with the Soviet Union. And they believed that old-fashioned ground troops were still needed. This point of view was particularly popular with the Army, which had been struggling against the Air Force and Navy for Cold War military relevance. In 1958, a joint report by the Arctic Institute of North America and the Office of Naval Research stated that, quote, We must not be surprised if the Soviets suddenly crossed the snow-covered rugged Arctic with their modern engines of war. The report envisioned a ground-based invasion over the pole. It went on to say, Science will permit our use of Greenland as an Arctic sword and shield, a mighty bastion of deterrent power essential to the NATO concept. Modern technology will make possible military operations in the far north, under the ice, on the ice, over the ice, previously inconceivable. The pieces were in place to push out onto the Arctic ice of Greenland. Thule, the airbase I talked about in the first part of this series, had transformed Greenland into a massive unsinkable aircraft carrier, ready to strike at the heart of the Soviet Union, at least until the B-52s and ICBMs meant that it could be done just as easily from the heartland of the United States. But the army had a vision, a way to put itself on the same nuclear-armed footing as the Air Force and the Navy. The Navy had been working with the army, sharing resources in the form of funding and personnel to develop the army's Jupiter missile into a submarine-launched missile. But when the Navy caught wind of the possibility of a much smaller warhead fixed to the relatively smaller Polaris missile system, the Navy transferred its resources to the new project, now entirely under the Navy's control, leaving the Army lagging behind in the race to be atomically relevant and with a very bitter taste in its mouth. The new concept would change that, 
It would have the elusiveness of the Navy's nuclear submarines paired with the range and power of the Air Force's new ICBM fleet. That concept was Project Iceworm. Iceworm would involve the deployment of a modified version of the Air Force's Minuteman missile, which would be called, appropriately enough, Iceman, as it would be installed under the Greenland ice cap. Iceworm was envisioned to cover an area of more than 52,000 square miles with a massive tunnel network that would allow 600 missiles to transit 2,100 predetermined launching points. They would be kept in constant motion on rail-based mobile launching platforms. The project would dwarf the cost and logistical complexity of Thule Air Base, but it would provide an almost unkillable nuclear deterrent, permanently hidden under the ice. Permanent, it was hoped. There were hundreds of questions, even thousands of engineering questions, that needed to be answered before building something like Iceworm. Most of those questions had never even been asked, and all of the answers would need to come from the Army's own original research on the Greenland ice cap. That, at least in part, leads us to the construction of Camp Century. It should be said, before we leave Iceworm and move on to that proof of concept and research facility called Century, that even though the plan was audacious and might even sound absurd, it was never really a secret. The Planning Studies Division of the U.S. Army Engineer Studies Center published a report on Iceworm in 1960 that I mentioned before. It was called The Strategic Value of the Greenland Ice Cap. And lest you think that they were coy about the scheme, here's a quote from that report. The missile force is hidden and elusive. It is deployed into an extensive cut-and-cover tunnel network in which men and missiles are protected from weather and, to a degree, from enemy attack. The deployment is invulnerable to all but massive attacks, and even then, most of the force can be launched. Concealment and variability of the deployment pattern are exploited to prevent the enemy from targeting the critical elements of the force. Iceworm remained hidden in plain sight until 1997, when the Institute of Danish Foreign Policy published a 1,100-page historic account that had originally been intended as an investigation into the perennially hairy diplomatic issue of the U.S. stationing nuclear weapons in Greenland while the Danish government pretended not to know. The investigation resulted in the Project Iceworm scheme coming to the public's attention. Of course, Camp Century and Iceworm were not the first time the United States had moved to appropriate northern Greenland for Cold War military purposes. Thule Air Base had been the largest engineering project ever undertaken in the Arctic, and radar installations were already standing vigil against incoming Soviet forces. Before Iceworm could be seen as a viable project, Camp Century would need to answer essential questions about base building, 
And before Camp Century could be built, a precursor project in the ice and snow would need to test construction methods and materials. That was Camp Fistclench. Fistclench was established in 1957, a little more than 200 miles into the interior from Thule Air Base. It was located at Site 2, the second of two aircraft control and warning stations. Incidentally, that would become Dai 2 and an essential part of the Dewline radar network. But that's a story for another day. Fistclench was a proof of concept for Century, which itself was a proof of concept for the Iceworm project. Fistclench used something called a Peter Snow Miller to dig trenches in the snow, which were covered by corrugated steel arches and then recovered. This was called cut and cover, and would prove to be the best way to create a subsurface installation in Greenland. Camp Fistclench was much smaller than Camp Century would be, with only a couple of dozen occupants at any time, and those only in the summer months. I'll put a floor plan in the show notes. Even at this smaller installation, the most daunting problem of under-ice construction was already apparent. Snow moves. Under pressure, snow becomes more dense, but it flows and deforms. At Fistclench, it was clear that the walls of the tunnels were closing in, and constant shaving was necessary to maintain the width. Maybe the most important discovery at Fistclench was that fueling the diesel generators was prohibitively difficult. In order to make the subsurface ice cap base a reality, nuclear power seemed to be the only viable option. Army planners felt that the logistical challenges in the Arctic were as extreme as any that would be encountered in the world. To be able to install and run a nuclear reactor under the Greenland ice cap meant that portable nuclear power would be an option for the Army anywhere it might find itself on Earth. Not just an option, but as the 1964 report on Camp Century states, easy by comparison. Camp Fistclench continued to research building materials and construction methods into 1959, when work on Camp Century began. Fistclench had been located 218 miles from Camp Tuto, which is an acronym for the Thule Takeoff. This was the easiest spot near Thule Air Base to mount the ice cap. But 218 miles in the words of the Army, imposed an unnecessary logistical burden. Eventually, planners settled on a site 138 miles inland from Camp Tuto. It was located on the road, and I do use that term very loosely, that led from Tuto to Site 2. And so the crevasse hazards had already been navigated and mapped. There was a small snag in looking for a name for the new installation. Because Greenland was part of Denmark at the time, there was an effort to avoid naming the camp after any person, living or dead. 
The Danish were particularly averse to, in the words of the army report, quote, maps which read like an obituary column. The original mandate for the camp called for it to be located about a hundred miles from the edge of the ice cap, and so Camp Century was suggested, and through repeated usage in correspondence and conferences, that became the official name. The camp was planned to house 100 military and civilian personnel on a year-round basis. It would be powered by a nuclear reactor and have a design life of 10 years. Construction began in 1959. The tunnels, as I've mentioned before, were actually trenches, covered with metal roofs and then buried in the snow. Inside the main tunnels, prefabricated buildings were linked together. Water was more pure than any on Earth. With a well drilled into the ice to a depth of 100 feet and a reservoir created with steam, that well would end up being 500 feet deep and pump 230,000 gallons, or 870,000 liters, a month. In fact, the water was so good that lab analysis showed that the ice melt was better in quality than water that had been triple distilled in glass. Get me a bottle of that, please. In the end, Camp Century housed all of the amenities that a soldier could hope for. Living quarters were relatively roomy, the bathrooms had plenty of showers, there was a hobby shop, a rec hall, a movie theater, a library, a hospital, a post office, scientific laboratories, and a non-denominational chapel. And the food, from what I've seen, looks to be much better than average. I'll put the army film of the camp in the show notes so you can see how nice it all ended up being. And it really was. At least for a little while. The tunnels began to deform almost immediately. To maintain the size and shape of the tunnel's 20,000 cubic yards, or about 15,000 cubic meters of snow, had to be removed annually. By the end of Camp Century's life, in 1966, Shaving the walls of the tunnel had become a full-time job and a constant burden. The vehicle traffic in the main tunnels leaked oil, grease, and fuel that dissolved the snow floors so that occupants of the camp were constantly walking through a dark slurry. This was solved by putting down boardwalks, but the ramps into and out of the tunnels remained a constant source of difficulty. In the final report, this remained one of two problems that went unsolved by the work done at Camp Century. The other was the drifting snow that continually blocked the entrances and emergency exits. In 1966, the Camp Century project was abandoned. And it was that drifting snow that the Army hoped would entomb the facility and all that was left behind. The nuclear reactor was removed, but much, or all, of the infrastructure remains to this day. A paper published in Geophysical Research Letters in 2016 
did a deep dive into just how much waste was left. In terms of physical remnants of the camp, the buildings, wiring, conduits, garbage, chicken bones, and just about everything else not worth hauling over the ice cap back to Thule was left in place to be covered by the annual snowfall. That was about 9,200 tons. The normal waste, general garbage, the kitchen scraps, used napkins, that sort of thing, was buried in snow trenches nearby in the same way that it would be buried on land. The diesel fuel in the generator tanks was also left behind, along with an unknown number of barrels held in reserve. About 53,000 gallons, or 200,000 liters. PCBs, the perennial bane of abandoned military installations, also pollute the camp. Polychlorinated biphenyls are toxic, but they're everywhere because they're just so useful. Electrical equipment like capacitors and transformers, industrial applications like hydraulic fluids, heat transfer fluids, lubricants and plasticizers, and durable paint used in all of the U.S. military facilities in Greenland. Essentially, every application that can be found for PCBs can be found in the remnants of Camp Century. Of course, all of the water waste from the years of occupancy still exists in a large void in the ice, pun very much intended. Sewage and gray water was pumped into an unlined snow pit where its natural heat allowed the poop soup to drill down to a level where the snow had been compressed enough to be impermeable. That was about 100 feet. From there, it spread out into a cavity of its own making, about 6.3 million gallons, or 24 million liters. Radioactive waste from the nuclear reactor, in the form of slightly radioactive water, was pumped into a similar unlined cavity. It remains unclear, or at least undeclared, whether the reactor vessel was emptied on site or whether it was shipped back across the ice intact. I mention this because if the fuel elements were removed on site and the water was evacuated from the vessel, the radioactive cavity might be much, much hotter than was declared in the official documentation of the 1964 report. Why do I mention any of this? A small, abandoned camp in one of the most remote places on Earth, dirty though it may be. It's because of two things. First, ice moves. Second, ice melts. And lately, it seems to be melting faster than usual in Greenland. The Army Corps of Engineers thought that the snow would cover Camp Century and all that was left behind forever. But current estimates by climate scientists, and particularly the research by William Colgan et al. in the paper The Abandoned Ice Sheet Base at Camp Century Greenland in a Warming Climate, indicates that the overlying snow at Camp Century will start to disappear near the end of this century, and the camp will likely be exposed around 2150. 
But the camp doesn't need to be exposed to cause problems. The warming temperatures and melting snow can mobilize the waste so that it creeps toward the edge of the ice cap much faster, where it will be a very unwelcome sight at Thule. For all of the mess that was left behind, it's also important to remember that a lot of extraordinary new science was done at Camp Century. As the army pushed into the big frozen emptiness, looking to find ways to smash the Soviets, it also took along scientists and engineers who took the opportunity to develop entirely new ways of looking at the Arctic and of looking at the world. Camp Century produced an ice core sample that represented annual climate data going back 100,000 years. That core is still used today by climate scientists, and through various means, a wide range of information can be read from it. Cloud temperatures, the altitude of the ice cap at the time it snowed, the relative concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and even global volcanic activity. Camp Century produced a huge body of information on the characteristics of snow and the ways that glaciers move, and a vast array of data relevant to Arctic construction. As with so many things, the noise and the sensation get in the way of the truth which is often so much more interesting. Camp Century was not a secret. It didn't hide nuclear weapons, it wasn't a cover for ice worm, and it didn't have any UFOs. But it was a fantastic engineering proof of concept. Camp Century was many things. It was the very public face of the Army's presence in the Arctic frontier and a popular propaganda prop. It was a military boondoggle, while at the same time being a hugely productive science and engineering endeavor. Camp Century was also the Army's answer to the public's growing fascination with the extremes of adventure. Astronauts were being flung into space, and Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea had become a reality with a real-world Nautilus nuclear-powered submarine making the world's first voyage to the North Pole under the ice in 1958. Camp Century was also something that seems suited to science fiction. But it wasn't the Army's only stab at space-age adventure in Greenland. We'll take that trip next time on the Cold War Vault. This episode was written and produced by DJ Kinney. That is me. You can find The Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault, and you can listen and subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Stop by coldwarvault.com to see images and show notes that I post for every episode. If you want to get in contact with me with ideas for shows, questions, or comments, you can do it there or at Facebook. Liking and subscribing on iTunes is honestly the best way to support The Vault. It truly does help. Until next time, stay warm.